Welcome. Welcome to the first podcast of Kuno. Kuno is the platform for humanitarian knowledge exchange in the Netherlands. And my name is Peter Heinz and I'm the coordinator of Kuno. And as coordinator, I'm in close contact with a lot of humanitarian professionals, practitioners, policymakers, academics. And in January this year, 2018, I ran into Tineke Seelen. She is the director of Stichting Vluchteling and Stichting Vluchteling is supporting refugees all over the world. And she said, hey Peter, take a look. I've just got a message from Ed Schenkenberg and he is very, very worried. Ed Schenkenberg is the director of a research institute in Geneva. It's called HERE. And he was at the time with the Rohingya in Cox Bazaar in Bangladesh. He was there at the request of the British Disaster Emergency Committee, the DEC. And he was examining the proceedings of the humanitarian response for the Rohingya that were driven out Myanmar. And now we're living in huge refugee camps in and around Cox Bazaar in Bangladesh. He was really shocked. He said, at this time, here in Cox Bazaar, I am witness of the failure of humanitarian response. And nobody, nobody does anything. Is this another go, man, the making? He was really referring to the failure of humanitarian response in the 90s in Africa. So as soon as I could, I invited Ed to share his findings with senior humanitarian professionals here in the Netherlands, and luckily he was willing to do so. So this is going to be the first podcast of Kuno. I have to apologize. It is a rather long podcast, 45 minutes, but I think it's all worth it. The first 25 minutes you hear Ed Schenkenberg sharing his impressions on this huge humanitarian crisis, a failure of coordination, and after that you'll hear Zia Chudori. Zia is the country director in Bangladesh for care, and he happened to be in the Netherlands just on the same day Ed was here. So first we're going to listen to Ed Schenkenberg, and after that Zia Chudori. The invitation, another Goma, question mark, deliberately was put in a provoking manner. It was exactly a feeling that I got after uh, spending two days um, in the camps already. And this was exactly something that, you know, crossed my mind using uh, Goma as a reference point. Um, uh, 1994, of course, uh, the influx of uh, Rwandan refugees. Um, and knowing the camp sit uh, situation there, um, I did indeed have a feeling at some um, at that point that I'm back sort of in the early 90s. Um, how is this possible? Um, behind me, you see um, the map of the area um, where, um, according to UN figures, now 1.2 million people are in direct need of immediate assistance. Uh, that includes um, host communities, um, refugees who arrived um, in Cox's Bazaar before August uh, 2017, and particularly the 688,000 refugees that arrived um, as of the 26th of August um, in that area. It's not the first time refugees came to Cox's Bazaar. Um, and in fact, for me, it wasn't the first time that I was in Cox's Bazaar. Um, I did have experience in the area in the early 90s, in addition to Goma. Uh, at that time, we had about 250,000 Rohingyas um, in the area, uh, in about 11 camps, if I'm not mistaken. And now it's many more camps and, and, area and sites, um, but because obviously the number is much larger compared to the influx uh, then. 
Um, what I will do in my presentation is start a little bit from the operational level and then gradually move on to some of the wide, the issues that are part of the wider picture. Um, because actually, in this situation, there's an inextricable link between what's happening at the operational level, if you like service delivery, and what's happening at the more strategic level of coordination, uh, interagency relations, relations with the government, and so on. On the operational level, of course, the focus of our um, mission particularly was the operations of the 13 uh, member organizations of the Disaster Emergency Committee, plus their local partners, um, but then also um, looked, of course, at the picture in terms of coordination, uh, international organizations, particularly the International Organization for Migration, IOM, uh, UN agencies, um, and also, in fact, met with the government of Bangladesh, well, I should say with um, the relief, Refugee Relief and Rehabilitation Commissioner, the RRC, in Cox's Bazaar. We didn't see actually any people at the DACA level from the government, uh, but it gives you an impression that we basically spoke with a representative group, I would say, of stakeholders um, in this situation. We were on the ground from the 17th of January until the 27th of January. Uh, most, actually, of those days were spent in camps, um, speaking with refugees, speaking with national and local staff also, and volunteers uh, of, of your organizations and other organizations. And then, of course, we spent, as I said, a number of days, particularly in Cox's Bazaar, speaking with UN um, at very senior levels also. First conclusion that we came up with, even, and a number of you are delivering <coughs> services and assistance according to what you can and should be doing, but actually the situation as such, what you are doing at your level risks to be, um, risks to be invisible compared to what the overall um, uh, picture is of the state of the response. And this has to do with a number of factors. First, um, uh, of course, the speed at which um, refugees arrived in September, peaks of 20,000 refugees a day, um, a government that has not been helpful uh, at every moment, uh, and a range of informal eight actors that were on the ground uh, as of day one, um, including Bangladesh military and others, um, that provided all kinds of services, but not of a quality that one um, wants to see necessarily. Um, so a very chaotic picture in the beginning, and services certainly provided, if services were provided, that lacked quality, uh, and that also uh, distributed in terms of a very, un in terms of a very, what one sees is a very uneven pattern. Um, probably most of you know there are no or hardly any roads into the camps, so where you see services provided at, let's say, the entrance of the camps, when you walk for two, three hours further down the camps, um, you see a different picture, for instance. So very uneven um, distribution, very uneven in terms of quality, uh, and huge gaps at the same time in that sense. Um, a number of you, a number of the organizations, operational on the ground, are including host communities um, in the delivery of services, but at a too small scale. Um, most of the host communities are entirely surrounded by now, of course, by, uh, by the refugees. So they have been in the way the, the camps have absorbed, if you like, the host communities. 
so in that sense, the three target groups that I mentioned in the beginning, in the sense of host communities, um, uh, refugees who arrived before August and refugees who arrived after August 2017, basically have almost amalgamated into one group of, of beneficiaries um, as such. And there is more attention now to the host communities, but in the um, I certainly, again, I think in the early phase of the response, um, a number of this, this was overlooked by at least a number of organizations. In terms of looking at the various projects and activities going on um, in the camps, being delivered in the camps, um, actually our sense is it's a patchwork, but a patchwork that doesn't add up. Um, so in that sense, um, uh, it seems that every organization is sort of busy delivering its services, the way it has defined uh, needs and the way it has defined its projects without uh, much cohesion uh, among these projects. And, um, in fact, um, as I said earlier, it doesn't, it doesn't connect as such. And this is particularly visible on the water and sanitation side, where latrines have been put in places um, which even in daytime are hard to access, uh, let alone at night. Uh, latrines very close to um, uh, the water pumps um, and already leading to immediately a level of a number of um, quite a large number of pumps that have been contaminated. Um, site planning is almost entirely missing in that sense. We saw one, um, it's just unbelievable in that sense, one area in one camp, the largest, Kutupalong, um, which actually had now seen an upgrading, had seen some work um, from one NGO. Pretty nicely done, at least in terms of the way bamboo was put in place, uh, gutters were put in place. But then, in fact, and this, this project had particularly been put in place to um, uh, also to make the camp in charge, which from the government is the main person uh, in charge from camp management, um, to make them aware on what needs to be done, to make other organizations working in the camp aware of what needs to be done. But the problem was they had hardly taken any other organizations to um, the, uh, these areas in the camp where they had done it. So this was a model, um, the way it, sh it should, should have been done. But in fact, they didn't demonstrate, they didn't show it to anyone. Uh, and this was one block of you know, Kutupalong, which is um, one of the largest, actually, if the largest uh, camp, and um, one little area for 1,200 households. That was it. Um, and I could go on. There's no lighting in the camps. Um, uh, shelter materials are far uh, of a standard, far below from what they should be. We, should, we actually also noticed a confusion, and an utter confusion in terms of standards, actually technical standards. This, some of that has to do with the fact that UNHCR particularly has um, a, a set of, I mean, has as a standard um, a number of square meters, whereas in fact the sphere standards, as you know, are much more around adequate space for living, which is about contextualization, so what can be done in a certain situation. Uh, so there is confusion very much, is it, you know, is it the square meters or actually is it just already... Is it much more about contextualization, adequate standard of living that actually uh, should prevail, which is, of course, the position that, that we took as a review team. Um, so at many levels, in that sense, and in many ways, there, as, as I said earlier, uneven distribution, uh, serious gaps in uh, service delivery, uh, a very, very chaotic uh, picture as, as such. And 
water sanitation, site planning, um, shelter materials, those are the, the items or the, the, um, uh, the, if you like, the sectors that are most visible. But actually one that we thought was the biggest gap of all, um, and this goes to the point that these people are refugees, is psychosocial care, mental health. Um, these people came in with huge trauma. And in fact, we did nine focus groups with refugees. Um, many of them, indeed, the emotion, the trauma was, you know, just, you just had to, you know, tip the surface and it was already um, people in tears and so on. Um, and there's hardly any psychosocial care activity being done in the camps. It's, I mean, it really blew my mind on how this uh, had been overlooked. Just in terms of, for instance, firewood, the deforestation is enormous because of creating the camps, so having space. But also, I mean, it's now further one sees this huge deforestation because of firewood that people use. I've already mentioned psychosocial care is, is a huge gap uh, and water sanitation shelter and so on. So what to do? Well, there, of course, one particularly comes to what I would say the coordination level. Coordination um, is probably an issue in every humanitarian crisis. I haven't seen many situations in which people didn't make remarks or even complaints around the coordination picture. It's the first time, however, in my career that I've heard people say, different people, in this situation, coordination is costing lives. It is an issue in every crisis, but particularly in the refugee situation, where the interdependence among what agencies do is, is probably the highest, I mean the most pronounced, because the space is very small in which you have to work, just the physical space. So what you do in terms of where you place the latrine immediately has a consequence for, the health, for health risks, for instance, for the health sector. And I could go on. I mean, there's all, the, all these, of course, relationships between the services that, that are provided. So that only makes coordination more um, uh, important. And as I said, I mean, uh, it's rare that I've seen a coordination picture that is more chaotic uh, than in this situation. I don't think I've seen it more chaotic anywhere, actually. There's utter confusion as to the model uh, that is applied. It's a combination, um, and I, so I'm particularly talking now around the coordination from the UN system. There's utter confusion whether it's a cluster uh, model with a humanitarian coordinator on top or whether it's a lead agency model with UNHCR on top. Uh, and the result, in fact, of the two is a mix um, in which uh, sectors, clusters are called sectors, in which there are basically no accountability lines whatsoever, uh, and everyone is looking at each other in terms of um, um, just actually in disbelief in terms of where the coordination is going to come from. That's on the UN side. The UN, of course, has its process and meetings. At the same time, there's a parallel system going on with the government. Um, and... Obviously, you know this, but just to emphasize in that sense, the government in that sense is not precisely homogeneous either. The prime minister's office has plays a role. The military plays a role. Um, the triple RC, the, the Refugee Relief and Rehabilitation Commissioner, plays a role. The district um, plays a role. So there's at least four or five entities that we counted that um, are also having, Bangladeshi entities that also have a stake um, in this um, and, of course, that adds to a, to a picture which is already very complicated. When we interviewed people, um, 
even at a very senior level, we found this confusion on what coordination model was being applied. And coming back on what I said in terms of the huge interdependence and particularly the lack of quality and the huge gaps that we, we have seen in the, gap, in, in the camps, um, as I mentioned, coordination then is really important. But what comes with coordination and why I'm stressing this is lines of accountability. The clusters were created in 2005 in an effort uh, by Jan Egeland to reform the UN uh, humanitarian response for non-refugee situations uh, to create accountability, to identify which organizations, particularly in IDP situations, would be responsible for what. And refugee settings were left out of that reform process because for refugee crisis we had clarity, i.e. UNHCR. So now it seems we have gone the full circle on this with some clarity for non-refugee situations and utter confusion for a refugee situation. As you know, from the beginning on, from day one, there has been a serious competition between IOM and UNHCR as to who would lead on behalf of the UN, with IOM being preferred by the government and UNHCR basically being the default, the def I mean, uh, the organization which by default would have the mandate because, in fact, the mandate it has for refugee response. Um, so that certainly has been part of the picture, that uh, competition um, slash fight. But, in fact, um, what we thought before going um, to Bangladesh was, in fact, uh, having seen some of the UN documentation on this, that was, as of end of September, it was, we thought very clear that UNHCR would be in the lead. Um, the emergency relief coordinator, head of OCHA, Mark Lowcock, together with Bill Swing of IOM and Filippo Grandi of UNHCR, sat together in New York at the end of September, and they came with the decision that from now, from that moment on, this would be a refugee response situation. That means UNHCR would be in the lead. Um, in reality, UNHCR is not in the lead. Um, it's a very complicated situation picture that I don't understand. The instructions that have been sent to the field by the UN, I don't understand. Because it basically says that the senior coordinator has been put in place, a position that doesn't exist in another situation. It's a new kind of position. The senior coordinator, who is the, mo the person most, I mean, directly responsible for UN coordination operations on the ground, um, reports to the resident coordinator in Dhaka. That's a direct reporting line. But then, in fact, for humanitarian um, issues, reports to IOM, and for refugee issues, reports to UNHCR. Now, how on earth you can separate humanitarian and refugee issues in this context is a complete mystery to me. Uh, and even on paper, therefore, the, the, the model doesn't work, let alone in practice. So she is completely overwhelmed, the senior coordinator. We met with her. Um, she, her immediate priority is to establish lines of accountability. Um, when we spoke with the clusters slash sectors, they said, yes, we, have, we are expected to coordinate, but we don't know what we can coordinate and we don't know to whom to report, whether it's to their own organization, as in the cluster model, or whether it's to UNHCR. So there's utter confusion at that level. When we raised this with the NGOs, a number of them reacted. Uh, you saw sort of heads nodding and um, understanding more or less what this was about. But then immediately the reaction was, well, what, what, this has, what this, does this have to do with us? And the problem here is exactly, as I said earlier, that this has to do everything with you. Because the fact 
that precisely in the situation we're in, where services are so chaotic and the picture um, is, is so problematic in terms of lack of quality, coordination clearly in terms of who is responsible for what, the need for that is obvious. You need to demand clarity. Um, UNHR has a mandate. They should be, if they are in the lead, they should be in the lead. Um, there's still a fight going on with IOM, we know that. But sorry, this is unacceptable. This is entirely unacceptable. Another problem, and that is that our assessment is that actually most of the organizations operational on the ground, most of them, approach this as if this was a natural disaster. This is not a natural disaster, it's a refugee situation. The problem there, of course, clearly is that from the beginning on, the government has not been in favor of even calling these people refugees. We have seen two uh, terms being used, undocumented Myanmar's nationals and externally displaced people. The latter I found even more bizarre. Um, clearly, if these people are not refugees, then what are they? And um, the point there is to say that um, in my understanding, humanitarian response is always provided in a situation that is, if you like, suboptimal in terms of the environment. In the sense that um, if it were optimal conditions, probably humanitarian, it wouldn't be humanitarian assistance. In the sense that so you will always find a situation in which either the government or any of the actors is not doing, um, you know, is not fulfilling its mandate or is not living up to the resp its responsibility. So you always will have a tension in that sense um, to create humanitarian space, to defend humanitarian principles and so on. We haven't seen that in this situation at all. And this probably goes back to my point around approaching this as a natural disaster. Many organizations in Bangladesh, they have, that's, their, that's their reference. That's what they know. And in this situation, and certainly following the World Humanitarian Summit, of course, there's been a lot of emphasis on localization. To be very blunt with you, we're paying the price now of localization. Many of the people that we spoke with had never heard anything on refugee law, don't know what refugee protection is and what the rights of refugees are. It's that basic. And that has an immediate implication for the way this response is organized. And it goes back, in fact, to the point you could say around, um, so what is our responsibility as organizations? Well, this is your responsibility to put to put in place a response that is appropriate to the context. Humanitarian response, humanitarian action, is never only just service delivery. It also has a protection dimension related to the context. And precisely protection dimension is vis-a-vis -vis the government, vis-a-vis -vis UN agencies, particularly UNHR, to, to remind them of their responsibilities. We're missing this. We haven't seen any concerted advocacy in this, uh, in this direction. Not from the NGOs. Um, the UN, as I've mentioned already, is fighting with each other, and we haven't seen it from donors whatsoever either. Simple reason is that we think uh, most of the messages in, in the direction of the Bangladesh government have been, understandably, Bangladesh government, well done, you kept your, your borders open. Many other countries in this world are not keeping their borders open. So, in fact, the leverage from, if you like, um, the West or other states on the government is pretty low in that sense. Who is going to tell Bangladesh to keep its borders open? 
if one sees what's happening, for instance, here in Europe. So the whole problem around refugee protection worldwide is certainly now coming to bear, is certainly manifesting itself here in the context of Bangladesh. This then, and this is my very last point, also points to the risk or the scenario of forced returns. At the end of our mission, um, when we you know, shared all of this, what I've just mentioned, with um, your colleagues on the ground, we actually, one of the scenarios we put on the table is um, precisely around forced return. It wouldn't be the first time um, that this would happen in Bangladesh. Certainly the operation in um, 94, 95 was one of forced return. Uh, the government has always treated this as a temporary problem, and they have made that very clear, whereas everybody knows this is not going to be a temporary problem. But still, whether um, it might still happen, probably. I mean, my, my own personal estimation is that they will gradually start with small groups, probably, and then try to accelerate the speed and the number of people they will try to push back. But push back to what? On the other side of the border, it's certain that people can't go back to northern Rakhine where they're from. So most likely what this is going to be is, in fact, IDP camps will be created, guarded by military, um, on the Myanmar side, and the aid organizations will be asked to work in those camps. That is, for those of you who are <laughs> as old as I am, that's regroupement, as we had it in Burundi in '95, all over. That's even the South African situation in the 70s where you're creating a, um, a situation of apartheid. And it's certainly creating... as at least in my view, an immediate ethical problem for the agencies, whether or not you would respond to an invitation from, me, from the Myanmar government, Myanmar government to work in those camps. I'll stop there. Thank you, Ed. Um, an urgent plea for a better delivery, better coordination, and advocacy for a better response. Uh, worries about what's going to happen when we push those people back. One question before I go to Zian. If we don't improve, what will happen then? If we don't improve... Um, before I went, in fact, people told me that the cyclone will be a next disaster. In it, I mean, uh, the rains are coming in six, seven weeks from now. It will be rainy season. Every so many years, you will have a cyclone in that area. That's going to be a next disaster. Well, when I saw those camps and the way they were constructed, I thought, this doesn't need a cyclone. This a little bit of rain will be enough. It's not a question if cholera will be coming. It's a question when cholera will be there. It certainly raises... From my point of view, a question for you as organizations, what are you doing in this context? Because as in Goma, there's a serious risk for the whole aid industry, whatever term you want to use, humanitarian community, to be held to account here. And rightly so, I would say. Tia Chaudhuri, Country Director in Bangladesh for Care. Let me just say a few random comments, trying to follow the thread of what Ed has said. Um, I think, first of all, I think he's very right. The last thing he said about this is a suboptimal uh, operating environment, that's true for all humanitarian emergencies. This one perhaps is a bit more suboptimal or a bit less optimal than others, but that's a given for any humanitarian context. And I think he, he made a good point at the beginning about it being the largest, it is actually, I think, currently the largest and the most densely packed or most concentrated refugee crisis in the world. And I think we mustn't forget that because it's there, it's not going away, 
it's incredibly fragile. So all the points he raises about having a better quality response, I think, yeah, we can look back and say that it has been weak, but we also have to look forward and say, well, let's damn quick make it better because the rains are coming. And even if they don't come, even if there was no rains, it is incredibly fragile for outbreak of waterborne diseases and other things like fire, for example. It's a complete hazard. There's a huge number of hazards. Any one of them can become an, another disaster. But let's go back to some of his um, uh, uh, main points. I think um, in terms of quality, I, I agree with Ed that the quality has been overall... Well, he, he said it's good, but not, not overall. You know, some of it was good, not overall. I think overall, from my perspective as care, it's been weak. Um, there's no real excuse for us not to understand standards and uh, accountability mechanisms at this stage uh, after they've been around for 15 years. We've got our handbooks, our technical and process standards. However, I think it's true what he said, that the conditions are so poor that um, it was incredibly difficult for most agencies to reach the technical standards that we set ourselves. Um, but however, one of the one of the principles in this in the sphere project, for example, sphere standards, is that if you can't reach a standard, you should explain why. You should make it clear. You should have a, an action plan to get out of that. I think that was missing. And if I I don't want to blame the environment. Rather, I will say that those early days were so chaotic, and it there were large and small organisations which flooded that place. I mean, on the plus side, there was such a huge show of solidarity where you had people from, yeah. you know, Hungary, Poland, Germany, Britain, and all over Bangladesh turning up and, you know, <laughs> most of them chucking things off the back of the truck, which was horrific, but still an, an act of solidarity, I guess, somehow. But also, the in those early days, uh, IOM and the government... And the NGOs were, were, were not able to, were, did not coordinate with one another, and therefore you had some agencies setting up thousands of latrines and others coming with 500 or $1,000 and sinking a well next to the latrine. I think Ed didn't go far enough to say that it's not just some of I it, mean, it's 65% of water sources in the settlements are contaminated with E. coli. So it is serious. Everybody has access to water, but most people have access to shitty water. So I remember the same thing in Aceh and the same thing in Kosovo, where people came with pockets of money. And people always blame those small guys. I don't blame them. I think, wonderful. You want to help? You come on, come and help. But at that time, what we could have done better is I think the government, who has vast experience in natural disaster management but not in refugee crisis, could have taken a firmer hand to try to help us plan who puts what where. But people were sinking wells everywhere and toilets everywhere. So... There was a chaos in the beginning, and one thing the NGOs, some of the NGOs did very well, is to guide the briefcase NGOs, the guys who came with $10,000, $20,000, say, do this, do that, but it simply wasn't enough. There was too many people. Um, and now there is a, a pushback, so some of the organizations are decommissioning the wells and sinking deeper wells. So there's a small movement to try to fix that, but on the whole it's still not being fixed. So you still have a lot of 
contaminated and unusable below standard services. Um, in terms of site planning, <clears throat> just want to say that, you know, uh, Ed mentioned that it was not good, and I think that I, I totally agree with that. It, it's suboptimal, and I actually, when I when I think back, I, I'm not sure I can think of um, how it could have been. The speed was such that people started setting up everywhere. The only point where a little bit of order came in was when the military deployed, and we were all panicked because we thought, do we really want the military here? Actually, they did a fair job of creating a bit of order and telling people where to set up. But in the early days, it was quite frightening because people set up camp wherever they could, and then they were being, at night time, uh, local government came and ripped things up and, and threw them away, and then the people the next day had to move somewhere else, and then again they were ripped up. So people were serially displaced in a short time. Now, I think where the great weakness was at that time is that the HCR, oh, sorry, the UN system and the NGOs didn't speak up because everybody was either too busy with their own business or uh, worried to criticise the government in case you lose your operational access. But I don't see that as a good excuse because we could have gone to the EU ambassadors, we could have gone to the resident coordinator. But actually the resident coordinator knew those things, but they didn't seem to do. They didn't take it seriously. Everybody was kind of tiptoeing around the Bangladesh government. And that thing is, there's an important thing here. We, you know, we do th- we thank them. We don't thank the government. The, the borders were not closed. They are porous and... You know, 10,000 people a day cannot be stopped when you've got 100 TV cameras watching you. So yes, we're grateful in a way that they opened their arms, but we also know that they had no other option. But the history of the Bangladesh government is one of sending people back rapidly in the 80s and the 90s. And um, even while people are coming over the border seeking safety, they're sending people back the other way. So there's a kind of um, a mistrust for us as NGOs there, of what the government will do. And so I think the response was wrong. It was basically to let them get on with things um, and try to focus on establishing our own services. Um, I'm not going to say too much. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, psychosocial care, which um, Ed mentioned. I, um, I, 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 don't, I disagree with him slightly. He said there's hardly any psychosocial care. I think... There's actually quite a lot, but it's hardly any good stuff. Right, exactly. Right? So, um, now, everybody everybody and his dog will say we do psychosocial care. Um, but that is a massive range of stuff from clinical to, the, you know, to uh, uh, recreational activities, to having a one-to-one chat with a doctor who has a little bit of training, or even having a safe space where another woman just has a, gives you an ear, you know, just listen to you. That's the most basic form and, and give you a game of chess or cards or a cup of coffee or a cigarette, whatever you need. Just a space. Now, the, I think there's a much deeper problem is that, you know, everybody wants to fund psychosocial care. Everyone says they can do it, but nobody really follows a clear standard for that. There are, uh, is it MHPP? I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. Mental health MHPP and, uh, yeah, yeah. There is a thing, but... Hardly anybody I saw, only, um, only a couple like MSF and uh, Action Control of Fam, they follow that. Um, otherwise, most people are struggling with what to do. So, very, very low. And at the same time, the numbers of people affected were so vast. 
but they are also culturally very conservative, so it's a struggle to be able to uh, treat people well. But I think if, we're not, if, we, if we don't want to end up with three generations of people traumatized, because they were traumatized before they came, they're traumatized in the camp, they're having kids who are going to be traumatized, and then they're going to tell their grandchildren about their shitty, horrific experiences. We have to act much faster, much better, with a much higher standard of care. And I think, I don't know the answer to that, but I think there needs to be a huge push on real quality care for the tens of thousands of women. And in this case, it is like any conflict where uh, um, sexual violence is used as a weapon. You know, this this is exactly what's happened here. There's not a war going on, but these women have been abused uh, as, an, as an as an act of aggression, uh, uh, so that they don't come back ever again. So, uh, I think we are trying. But simply not good enough. It's not good enough to say that we, you know, I think it's, it's, we're no longer able to say we tried our best, right? That, that, that road, that excuse cannot be given any further. So much better work needed than that. Um, I think, you know, I think there was a good example you give about firewood and about <clears throat> what can we do? There's a huge deforestation and so on. I think a lot of agencies, this is not really an excuse, it's rather, it can give some one angle, is that some of us did try to provide gas, but the government said, no, it's too dangerous. Others wanted to provide gas, but they were frightened that they can't use them, it might explode and you might kill somebody. So there's a lot of liability issues. And then some tried to give these compressed pellets, some tried to give dung and so on. But again, it's the sheer numbers of people there. We, we Our ability to innovate and stretch ourselves I don't think we managed to do that, and probably largely because people were so focused on just setting up whatever they could do as a minimum. But that, again, is not a good excuse because we, you know, um, in, in this kind of crisis, you should know that there are some problems which will immediately arise. One of them is waste disposal of people's shit and rubbish, and the other thing is people need to cook, they need to eat. What are they going to eat? What are they going to drink? So we know these things, but again, this might come back to the fact that. Um, for many of us, we uh, we didn't see it as a refugee crisis. You know, it was just a massive displacement, and um, forgetting that these people are nowhere near home. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to get wood from. They don't have alternative sources. So I think there's a, there's a. I agree with Ed that you know a lot more could have been done in terms of innovation and uh, being creative. Ed talked about the coordination and the chaos um, and the lines of accountability. I think that I, I, I agree with him overall. And one of the, the sadder parts for me was the speed with which INGOs, including myself, disengaged from the shambles which we saw in terms of the coordination mechanism. Now, I, I'm not proud to say that. I'm ashamed to say that. But I say it's the reality because you, when you have... You're fundraising, trying to deal with the press, trying to deal, trying to recruit staff, trying to set up an operation. You need somebody to support you and help you. And when you see something not working, and you, you know also that they are in crisis and they are in conflict, you just one of the simplest things is the path of least resistance is to say I'm, I'm not, 
I'm not going to deal with you guys. I'm just going to do my own thing. And I think for a lot of us, that's what we did. We just backed off. Um, but it's also true that we know there's a lot of internal conflict between the two organizations. UNHCR doesn't have a huge um, amount of, let's say, authority there amongst NGOs. With the government, they were always clear that IOM is the lead. And whilst I don't think, I think IOM you know, uh, could have done better, I also think they were in a, almost an untenable position being asked to manage something this size, which they don't have the capacity or history to do. They started seconding people from Ocha and so on and so forth. But, you know, this is one of the things you didn't mention. By the time of November or December, there had been three major surges of UN staff. There were hundreds coming in for a month, and then they go home. And then another hundred come in, hundreds come in for another month, and they go home. And then each one of them brings their energy and says, yeah, come on, guys, come on, NGOs, let's do this. And we're like, we've been here three months, man. You know, you've just turned up. And you're telling us all over scratch. So we get tired of that, and then you, you start to disengage again, because you think, well, these guys are not serious. They don't stay here, you know. So that, that's particularly true for our national colleagues who just were, were fed up of the, the turnover of people. Um, I think also, just maybe one last couple of things I want to say before I stop, is that... Um, I think Ed may have a lot more faith in the coordination system than I do. I'm also jaded, maybe in a different way. I think you still have faith. <laughs> but I <coughs> don't see coordination um, as a panacea. Rather, I always see it as a huge struggle to get to the basic level of having a cluster which works, or clusters which are effective, and so on. So we don't start from a perspective of having a memory of a high-standard, high-functioning humanitarian coordination system. Rather, our memories are all of relatively weak ones, and then expecting, hoping that this will become better. So I'm sorry, that's a really defeatist way. But again, when you're trying to set up and establish an organization, an office, and serve people, and your own staff are becoming traumatized, and I'll, I'll never forget my female colleagues coming back from those first days and saying that they put their notepads down and stopped asking questions and just held hands. And I felt, to me, to me that was like saying, well, that's the essence of humanitarianism, that you just put down your work and give people a human touch. And they did that, but that trauma stayed with them. So in the end, often my push to them was, just do your day-to-day -day stuff. Leave, leave me and a couple of others to deal with the UN system and the coordination system um, and just get on with your job. And then you have the detachment from the system. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's a different, a different position. Now, the very last thing I want to say is about the localization issue. Um, we really pushed for this in CARE, and I know others did as well, um, you know, in terms of supporting national organizations, but there were very few and they're completely overwhelmed and they don't have experience of working with refugees. We also, many of us pushed for national staff to be promoted, rightly or wrongly. I think where, where we are, where we were weak, where we could have done much better, is for people like me and other heads of office to quickly come down to the field level and say, this is what it means to be in a refugee crisis. And we didn't do that. For whatever reason, we didn't do that. Um, in terms of lobbying for protection, well, 
again, protection is one of the most misused and overused terms in the humanitarian industry. Every, everybody likes to just throw that word in like gender, you know. Protection, gender, it's just, it's in your proposals. But it's a really different ballgame to work with traumatized people who have moved hundreds of miles from their home and uh, dealing with Bangladeshis who have faced the flood. So I think there was a lot more that we could have done there uh, to, uh, to, to balance, you know, to, well, basically to, to in, in, engage our staff and to uh, inform them and teach them and support them to take a bigger protective view rather than just one of assistance. And in terms of lobbying, well, I think whilst we are good at lobbying the government of Bangladesh on many issues, the Rohingya issue is one which we've been scared of dealing with them for years because, for a start, before the crisis, there was only four NGOs there. Most of us weren't allowed to work there. And more recently, one thing which Ed maybe doesn't know is that you know, some of us who have tried to gather the views of refugees about what they want to do have been told to stop. Mm-hmm. Government has said, don't, don't publish, it's not your business. You know? These people are going back. They're not here, they're not welcome here. We don't want them here. You can help them. But don't talk to them about what they want to do. That's our business. And so we have to balance whether we will lose our operational space, ability to work, or whether we want to lobby. And that's why I said to the EU uh, permanent representatives I met two days ago in Brussels, I said, that's your job. It's your job to lobby the government of Bangladesh hard about the future, about options, about repatriation, refoulement. All these are big issues which you can deal with easier than us. Not to say it's not our responsibility, we'll feed information, but really that, in Bangladesh, it's, it's a dangerous game uh, for NGOs to play. I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Tia Chaudhary, Country Director, Care Bangladesh, and before him, Ed Schenkeberg, Director of Here in Geneva. Bangladesh is a dangerous game. With these words ends the story of Ed Schenkenberg and Siad Chaudhary. A sad story on the most densely packed refugee crisis in the world. Huge gaps in service delivery. A chaotic picture. Coordination is costing lives. But also, there is no excuse for us. Let's make it damn quick better. The humanitarian community will to be held to account here. I hope you do find the first podcast of Kuno worthwhile. As a platform for humanitarian knowledge exchange in the Netherlands, we will produce more podcasts, for instance on war-torn in Yemen, with representatives of local actors from Yemen, or on starvation with Professor Alex de Waal and his book Master Starvation. If you like them, do forward the link to our podcast. I hope to see you next time. Bye-bye.